You may be seated. We're in the middle of a series called Breaking Free. And for Mother's Day, I thought, um, being a mother, I know a few things about this. And one of the things mothers struggle with a lot (laughs) that we need to break free from, and I think all of us do, is mommy guilt. Anybody? Mommy guilt? Um, It doesn't matter. The interesting thing is whether you're an at-home mom or you're a working mom, you carry guilt about that. Whatever it is, you feel guilty about whatever it is you're doing. If you're at home, you think, man, I really should be working. And if you're working, you think, oh, my kids would be doing better if I was at home, right? I looked at a survey, um, it was called like a no judgment day that one of the women's magazines had done. And it said, what are the things that women are feeling most guilty about? And like, these were things that scored in the 80s to 90s. One of the number one things, my house is not clean enough. I know it's too late for a Mother's Day present, but apparently that would make, cleaning services would make a good one. Um, Another one that they were worried about, moms, I am not a good enough parent. And this one cracked me up. 80% of women said, I am not in as good a shape as most women. (laughs) Do you see how that's funny? 80% think I'm not as good a shape as most women. So obviously we carry, ladies, a lot of guilt, and ladies aren't the only ones. Men carry guilt too. In fact, guilt is one of the things that can keep you locked up. And it shouldn't be this way because Easter Sunday has come. Jesus has died to set us free. And so I want to tell you the story of one man who experienced Easter Sunday but still wasn't free. And we're going to see how that was for him. Um, And you're going to find this scripture in the last chapter of John, John chapter 21. And I'd love to read you the whole thing, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read you a little bit. This is the very end of the Gospel of John. Later, so this is after the resurrection, after Jesus has appeared to the disciples, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. Where were they? They were back in Galilee? This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, did you notice something about this passage? There's a man in there that's going by a couple of different names. And who is that? Simon Peter. Now, we call him what? Peter. What does Peter mean? Do you remember? Rock. So when Jesus gives Peter this nickname, when he says, his name is Simon, it's like if your name was Kevin. And Jesus comes up to you and he's like, now, Kevin, your name is Rock right? Yeah, that is a manly, awesome name. Jesus is calling me rock, right? 
But in this passage, and this is something that the gospel writers do, especially John, who was one of the disciples, you can tell the shape of Peter's heart and his standing, where he's standing, by what he's being called. If he's being called Simon, that is bad, okay? He is acting out of his old self. If he's being called rock, he's awesome. He's rocking it, okay? When he's Peter, he's rocking it. Now, what about when he's Simon Peter? It could go either way, right? So he begins this passage as Simon Peter, and when he sees Jesus, he's Peter. And then we're going to see Jesus calls him Simon later in this passage. But before we get to that, what I want y'all to look at is how Simon Peter got here. What was the story up to this point? Let's take it all the way back to the first time he was in a boat and Jesus came along. Do y'all remember that story? Now, Simon Peter, or Simon at this point, sitting in the boat, is a good, upright man. He knows the law. As a child, just like every Jewish boy and girl, he studied it. He didn't take math and science and reading and writing. If he did reading and writing, it was reading and writing of the Bible. Committed huge chunks to memory. We were really impressed when we were in Lucinda because the kids there can quote an entire psalm. Like, we have to read it. They're quoting it. Peter knew even more. And when you know the Word of God, say you have large chunks of it in your head, you know that God wants you to live the right kind of life, that God wants mercy, that you need to be compassionate and generous and forgiving, right? That you need to be a light to the rest of the world. And when you know these things, what else do you know? That you're not so great at that, right? When you know the Word of God the way Simon knew the Word of God, the way everybody in that day knew the word of God, then you know that you are failing. You know that you're not living up to it. You know that there's a standard that God loves you and you're not meeting it. And so when Jesus, perfection with skin on, sits in Simon's boat, do you remember what he says to him? Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. Simon was a child of the law. And children of the law, when perfection is sitting next to them, know, I don't deserve to sit next to you. I am too much of a sinner. And so he says, leave me. Go to somebody who deserves you. What does Jesus say? He says, actually, I am leaving, and I want you to follow me. Follow me. And so what had moved Simon that day was this net full of fish, right? Catching fish where there shouldn't be any. And in the years that come, as he walks with Jesus, he sees so much more. He sees heaven torn open. He sees Elijah standing with Moses, talking with Jesus, who's glowing brilliant white. He sees people, children, raised from the dead, given back to their parents, Put them back in, Jesus puts those kids back in their parents' arms. He sees people that the doctor had given up on healed like that. He sees people who it wasn't their bodies that were aching, it was their souls who were broken, who everybody had written off, given life again because Jesus forgave them. And so what Peter, because now he's called Peter, 
begins to believe. He leaves that Simon behind, Simon who was condemned. He becomes Peter, the rock, the one who believes, now I have a new life because I'm with Jesus. Now life is made new. Now I won't fail again. I'm on a roll, right? Now what do we know about Peter? He took risks. He laid it out there. He tried things. He said things. He blurred out the answer, and it might be right, and it might be wrong. But he was courageous. And so on this night of the Passover, when Jesus says that all of the disciples are going to betray him, what does Peter say? Not me. I'm your rock. I'm not going anywhere. I will stand by you. I know it. And Jesus says, you're not going to. And Peter says, yes, I will. And he didn't, did he? The dark night of the courtyard, people come with swords drawn. They take Jesus away. Almost every disciple except for James and Pe- or John and Peter flee. And they follow to the courtyard of the high priest where apparently John got them in because he knew that family. And Peter's sitting in the outer courtyard with the servants. And y'all probably know the story. But all they're doing is they're talking about what's going on. This, this guy, Jesus, who claims to be the Messiah. And Peter's sitting there silent. And they say, do you know him? Peter says, no. Hey, weren't you with him? Aren't you with him? No. Come on, you sound like you sound like him. Surely you're one of his disciples? He says, I swear it, I don't know the man. And the rooster crows. And we know that Peter went away from that broken. And what I'm realizing as I read through these chapters is that yes, he was a witness to the resurrection. Easter had come, Jesus was alive again. That this was a great victory. And Peter knew it. But Simon felt like, it's not for me. I had my chance and I lost it. When Jesus needed me to stand up and say, I know him. He couldn't even do that. And the guilt is suffocating him. Easter has come. And where is Peter after Easter? He's given up. He's met the resurrected Lord. Jesus has told him, now, establish the church, you know, go out, do that. And where are Peter and seven, six other disciples? They're back home. They're back doing their old jobs because they have failed at being disciples. And that's what I see time and time again with all of us is that whether we know Jesus or not, we fail. Even after we've met him, even after life should be different and we, should, we know we know better and we know we have the power to resist, we fail. And so I'd ask you, these disciples are out on the boat in the darkness. Remember the, the sea is chaos. It's beneath them, the dark of night. Cast-offs in a boat. Where is that for you? What is that thing that if anybody else knew it about you, it would be over? 
What about that thing that everybody already knows about you? And you just are dragging it around. Have been for a decade, two decades. That thing that you said that just like Peter, if you could just go back, you would say it differently. That relationship that you lost. That chance that you'll never have again. What is that? Because whatever that is, I know what it's whispering to you. It's saying, man, maybe God will forgive you, but he's not going to forget. Or you have ruined your life, or it's over. Those things that you said can't be unsaid. Y'all, we all have to face what we've done, but we don't have to drag it around with us. Jesus says that God puts our sins at the bottom of the ocean. I have a picture on the study guide. Why don't you look at that? The study guide on the back of this scary-looking fish. The ocean is almost seven miles down. This fish is one of the few creatures that can live a quarter of the way. Think about seven miles underwater, how dark and cold and heavy it is. How you couldn't, with that much ocean weighing on top of you, this fish, creepy as it is, cannot live down there. In fact, I don't know that we know that anything can live down there. So when God says, when Jesus says, your sins are buried at the bottom of the ocean, they are gone. So look at how Jesus comes to his disciples. Look at that. There he is on the side of the shore. Notice he doesn't speak from heaven and say, get yourselves back to Jerusalem. You are in trouble. He goes to them, to his broken disciples who are carrying this guilt, who are failing even at what they used to do. So awesome. And he asked them the question that they hoped nobody would be there on the shore looking for fish, right? Hey, he's 100 yards out. Have you caught anything? They can't tell it's Jesus. And they're like, what do they say? No. They don't elaborate. (laughs) And Jesus says, try the right side of the boat, right? This might sound familiar, okay? Try the other side. And they throw the net down. And suddenly, there are so many fish that these seven guys cannot pull them all up. They're not strong enough. Now, at that point, do you see how they know Jesus? They know him because he's the one that transforms failure into victory. And so John says, John who's writing this book, it's Jesus. And suddenly, Simon Peter is Peter again. And he jumps in the water starts walking, swimming, whatever, across that dark chaos to get to Jesus. Now, when Jesus gets ashore, do they have a You disciples, I invested three years in you. I taught you everything. You lived with me. You really messed up. I need to see some groveling. Guys, you're laughing, but remember this. Because if Jesus didn't shake his finger at the disciples, what makes us think he's doing that to us? What makes us think that we have to grovel our way back home if Jesus went and found these men so that he could forgive them? He'll find us too. 
So what does it say? They get off the boat, they go in, and what does Jesus have for them? Breakfast. Breakfast is ready. You've had a rough night? Here's some breakfast, Jesus says. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was so much more than breakfast. This was forgiveness. Because in the ancient Near East, you, you ate a meal with someone that you had complete trust in, that there was nothing between you. You didn't eat meals with people that you were on the outs with, and if you were on the outs with them and you ate a meal, then that was a meal of restoration and forgiveness. And what's at the meal? Bread and fish. What do you think that reminded them of? I think it would have reminded them of that last night when they all messed up. That Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. So that when Thomas doubted the resurrection, when all of them fell asleep and then ran away, when Peter denied him, when James and John were too busy arguing about which one of them was the most epic disciple ever to realize that their master was about to die, all of those things and that broken bread as he feeds that to them, don't you think that they, were, they saw what it meant there on the beach and the fish? Here are men who are thinking, we don't have what it takes. We have failed. And what do the fish remind you of? They remind me of Jesus taking a little boy's lunch and feeding thousands. Don't you think they could have reminded those disciples that whatever we have, whoever we are in God's hands, it's enough. And so then Jesus takes Peter aside, and this is kind of the, this is the harshest part to me. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, because remember, what does he say? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Ouch, right? There's no rock there. It's do you love me? And, and then we have, look at how John writes it. Yes, Lord, Peter replied. Jesus asked again, Simon, do you love me? Yes, says Peter. One more time, Simon, do you love me? And Peter says yes. He's restoring him. For all the times that Simon said no, Jesus is giving Peter, the rock, a chance to say yes. And yes to what? Are you really sorry? Will you really never do it again? No, do you love me? Because that's the heart of it, is do we love Jesus? Do we love him? Because that's the question he'll ask us when we meet him on the beach. He knows we're sorry. Gosh, if you're being eaten up by guilt, Jesus knows you're sorry. He knows if you could do it again, you'd do it differently. You don't need to tell him. You do need forgiveness. And what I'd like us to remember today is that we should be set free. That you should never be trapped in Thursday. Never. Because Easter has come. Because Jesus is alive. Because guilt is an ugly prison. And Jesus doesn't want you to be a part of it. 
And as a testimony to that today, I'm going to invite Dave Schreiber to come forward. He, um, he agreed to share his story about God helped, how God helped him break free from guilt. And I wanted us to close the message with that today. So Dave, would you come? Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Dave, and I'm a Methodist. <laughs> this is, uh, it's my story about my recovery from alcoholism and all of the guilt associated with it. But the glory and the grace goes to God. When I was about five years old, I used to love to go to my dad's clothes closet and uh, I would open it up and I would put a pair of his shoes on and tromp around the house. One day I went to the closet and I opened it up and the clothes were gone. And my mom came in and said, your dad left us and he's never coming back. And that was the start of the guilt that I took. Because I thought that the reason my dad left was my fault. And... All through school, elementary school, high school, I would set myself up for failure because in failure, I could relish in the guilt. When I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I made the all-county team as linebacker, and that was one of the first times that anybody as a sophomore ever did that. A little school out east was interested in the Ohio State University. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. (laughs) And that year, I proceeded to fail my sophomore year. And there went my chances for a football career at Ohio State University. That continued on through college, through the Army. Uh, I got married... I ended up at a, uh, as a scoutmaster of a little failing uh, Boy Scout troop. And over the years, we built that up from 13 boys up to 44 boys. And at one time, uh, we had seven uh, of my scouts were uh, at their Eagle Court of Honor. And three of them were the first ones in the country to get this new Atomic Energy Merit Badge. And the mayor of Cincinnati was there. The vice president of uh, General Electric was there. Everybody was there but me. I was too drunk in a bar to get off the bar stool. I had set myself up again for a giant failure. Um, I had founded a, uh, a mechanical contracting company in Cincinnati. And one day my partner came in and said, Dave... Your drinking is killing the company. You have to make a decision. Do you want the company or do you want to keep on drinking? It was no choice at all. I walked away from the company. Um, I ended up living in a farm tenant house on the outskirts, real close to the Indiana border. There was no heat. Uh, the only heat I had was my water bed and my little blow dryer in the bathroom. And I had enough money to buy oil for the furnace. But what I chose to do was go to pay my bar bill instead. So I suffered all through that winter with, uh, with no heat in the farm tenant house. It was just about that time that my oldest daughter was five years old or so. 
she liked to go to my closet and put on a pair of shoes. She went to the closet one day. Her mother came in. The closet was empty, and she said, your dad left us. He's never coming back. So I hit my bottom, I guess, and I said a four-word prayer. I said, God, I need help. And I stumbled into AA. And I can remember my first few meetings that I was into AA and recovery. They would only give me a half a cup of coffee because my hand was shaking so much. And I was sitting across the table from this wise old man who I got to know over the years and years. And he looked at me trying to grab my cup of coffee And he said, you know, he said, I believe you could thread a running sewing machine right now. (laughs) I was sober for about 10 days. I had just come back from a meeting. And I was in my kitchen, and I called my sponsor. And I said, I don't understand this. I can't figure it out. And he said, that's it. You figured it out. And I said, no, I told you, I can't figure it out. And he said, that's it, you figured it out. You figured it out that you can't figure it out. It has to take somebody bigger than you. And that's when my recovery began. He said, drop to your knees right on the kitchen. And right then I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. I was sober for about three years when I heard on the radio that halfway between Louisville and Cincinnati, uh, a drunk was going the wrong way on the interstate and ran into a church school bus and killed 27 people. The reason that bothered me so much was because of three times I came out of a blackout, and I was going the wrong way on interstates. And it was only by the grace of God that that could have been me. My guilt that I had was replaced with gratitude. And I got my gratitude by giving. And that's all possible because of grace. And by the grace of God, in 10 days, I'll have 28 years of continuous sobriety. There was an old smoke-covered sign uh, at my group in uh, AA meetings in Dayton, Ohio. And when I walk in here, I can see that sign up overhead. And that sign said, hope is found here. I can find hope on Sundays when I come in here. But I keep hope the rest of the week by helping others. You know, when I go on mission trips, when I help to recover from the Spicewood fires when I'm down serving sandwiches at the church under the bridge, before I go, I can always pack a bag full of my guilt 
and I can take that with me. But you know, on the way back, that guilt has been replaced by gratitude and by grace. When I was about eight years sober, my mother, who was well into her 90s then, uh, she'd cock her head and look at me and say, are you still on the wagon? (laughs) And I'd say, yeah, Mom, I'm still on the wagon. And she'd say, not even a nip? And I'd say, no, Mom, not even a nip. You know... I say grace now over my beautiful bride and her two daughters and my two daughters. And that same daughter that went to the closet and couldn't find my clothes in July is now moving to Austin because she wants to be closer to her father. So grace has changed me a day at a time. And together, we can change the world one person at a time. Thank you. Let's stay standing, okay? Because Dave has just told us what it means to be a child of grace. And that is what I would pray for each and every one of us, is that we could be set free by Jesus just as Dave was. And then instead of that chains and that prison of guilt... We can be free, set free. That's the gift Jesus wants to give you. So let's sing this as our response today. And if part of your response is that you'd like to join the church and you'd like to have a community to support you as you make that transition, come up and talk with me. I'll be right here. Let's sing. All to Jesus I surrender All to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him In His presence day
this benediction and what I'm going to tell you Dave I hope this is okay with you but Dave and I'll be up here and Bertina too if you'd like to talk to us about anything if you feel like you need to be set free or you just like me to pray with you I'll be up here because Jesus does want to set us free so go forth and if you're dragging around some guilt stop it don't let it leave here go out free ask Jesus meet him on the beach and say I love you and pray that prayer that Dave did help me please Do that. Be set free. Don't carry it out, okay? That's the benediction. Amen.